Fearless. 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 Fearless Presence. I am your host, Melanie Weller. And today I have with me Dawson Church, and I am a huge fan, so this is super exciting. Uh, Dawson Church, PhD, is famous for many things, including his laugh. He is an award-winning science writer with, and you can hear him laughing there in the background, (laughs) he is an award-winning science writer with three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and his latest book, Bliss Brain, which demonstrates that peak Mental states rapidly remodel the brain for happiness. Dawson has conducted dozens of clinical trials and founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote groundbreaking new treatments. Its largest program, the Veterans Stress Project, has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans with PTSD over the past decade. And I so appreciate that as I was a Navy wife for 20 years, uh, I'm still married to my veteran. <laughs> and the uh, I worked for the Army for a little while as well and helped to found uh, an intentional housing community for veterans here in New Orleans. So that's a veterans are a cause that are very near and dear to my heart. Uh, Dawson shares how to apply these health and performance breakthroughs through EFT Universe, you can find more about that at EFTUniverse.com, one of the largest alternative medicine sites on the web. And I was introduced to Dawson Church's work maybe, I don't know, six or seven years ago around, or I'll say when Mind to Matter came out, (laughs) whenever that was. And I so appreciate it as a, a physical therapist that created an uh, energy medicine paradigm. It was very helpful in keeping me grounded in the evidence and knowing that what I was doing wasn't completely crazy <laughs> and that there was... Um, well, that the rest of the world is, is rapidly becoming as crazy as we are, Melody. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm actually really happy to be on the uh, on the leading edge of the craziness. <laughs> Yes, the, uh, but it took me like, you know, like those, you know, when we go through, uh, you know, me coming into this, like into this level of craziness was, was kind of part of my midlife crisis. And so I didn't, if you had asked me 10 or 15 years ago, if this is where I was going to be, I would have, I would have had a hard time imagining it, but it's been amazing. It's an amazing ride. (laughs) Tell me what your definition of bliss is or how you define bliss it's simply feeling really good and if you look at virtually every action human beings take it's designed to make them feel good and so people think i'll feel good if i get married get divorced move to minnesota move away from minnesota become a doctor uh retire have a hobby blah 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 you know all we're all we're doing is we're looking at these ways of feeling good. And so Bliss Brain, in the way I used in my new book, is simply the act of feeling really, really good. Now, the cool thing is we, we, we don't have to rely on subjective reporting to know that people feel good. And that's just a thing, thing we can do on a scale, like how do you feel zero through 10? What's your happiness level? You're reporting that to me subjectively. But in Bliss Brain, I cover all the research 
using MRIs and EEGs into advanced states of, of consciousness. People who are in flow, people who are athletes or scientists or musicians or others that get into these extraordinary flow states, and also the monks and nuns and meditators who also are in these states. And that lets us measure bliss objectively. And that, that's what's so cool, because now we can put a number to your, your bliss. You aren't putting a number to your bliss. The scientist looking at the readout from your MRI is noticing, for example, how much of certain brain waves you are, are making. And the one, the key one we look at is the highest frequency wave called gamma. And the, the, the monks who make most gamma have been meditating sometimes for over 40,000 hours in their lifetimes. They have a lot of time spent in these bliss states. But when they do, their level of gamma goes up 25 times. And that's really extraordinary. In fact, sometimes the, the researchers who are hooking up those MRIs and testing their brains are just dumbfounded. They don't even know what to do with, with data like that because those elevated states of bliss are so far beyond what the average person thinks is possible. So what I'm focusing on now is just defining bliss in that way, helping train people to get not necessarily to that, that Tibetan master state, because people don't even know it's possible, but get maybe twice as happy initially. You know, would you accept twice as happy for right now? And then later on, we'll, we'll go from there. And it's, it's wonderful, especially to people who've been traumatized or have been upset, depressed, anxious, in pain. Uh, it's to discover that you can live your life every single day, resilient, happy, creative, is a miracle. So it fills you with awe, you want to share it. And that's what I talk about in this brain. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love it. And um, yeah, I read, I spent the last week devouring this book. I had the audiobook. I've had the audiobook for a couple months and I got the hard copy so I could, I could uh, take it in both ways. And, uh, and I know you go over a little bit of this in Mind to Matter as well, but you really, um, in Bliss Brain, you talk about how you've been able to use the research to create your EFT system to kind of hack needing to do 10,000 hours of practice and to be able to get there faster. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I went through the uh, 10,000 hour process myself. I learned to meditate when I was 15 years old. I was desperately unhappy and I was living on a, in a spiritual community at 15. Just before that, I had this pivotal experience when I was at a hotel with some family friends, and I was walking through the hallway of the hotel, and there was a full-length mirror, an ornamental mirror, and I stopped and turned and looked at myself, and I tell the story in Bliss Brain, I tell the story of how I looked at myself in the mirror, and I can see, you know, I had these long, kind of, um, long curly hair halfway down my chest, and I had a bag of books on my shoulder, and these blue bell-bottom trousers, and I looked, I stared at this being in the mirror and this thought just popped into my mind without me trying to think it. And the thought was, that is the saddest face I've ever seen. And so I went to go live in a spiritual community. We did all kinds of practices like learning about the world's great religions and philosophies, meditation, energy healing. And I got a little bit happier over the next few decades, but, um, but not very. And so it, I learned to meditate that way 
the old style of instruction where you close your eyes, you try and still your mind, maybe follow your breath, or you pay attention to your thoughts. But um, it didn't work that well for me, and it doesn't work well for most people. And that's the way these ancient mystery schools have you do it. They may have you do a body-based meditation, body scan type meditation, following the breath or following your thoughts or not trying not, try not to get lost in your thoughts. And so those are, are valuable. But no, now that we've hooked up these practitioners who have 20,000 hours, 30,000 hours, 40,000 hours on meditation, and we can see their brainwaves, we can now train people to acquire those brainwaves really fast. Like I did a retreat with about 40 people in San Diego around a year ago. And at the retreat, we hooked people up to EEG machines before and after. And so we could actually read their brain patterns. And then we trained them to acquire the brain states of Zen master. And the first day, it was hard. Like by the second day, they could get there in maybe 10 minutes. So very, very quickly, without 10,000 hours. Now in 10 minutes, we can coach them into being there. By the last day, seven days later, people were getting there in two, three, four minutes. So they sit down, they close their eyes, and they are in a full-blown, what's called in Hinduism, samadhi experience. They're having this, this pattern, this brainwave pattern of bliss brain. And some are getting there really fast. The lady that got there fastest was in this full-blown mystical experience, bliss brain, brainwave state, in 47 seconds. So there's a section in in chapter one of bliss brain called from 50 years to 50 seconds. And I talked there about how it took me 50 years to figure out these practices. A lot of research by a lot of different researchers has gone into those studies now. But now that we've got the pattern, we know what the formula looks like, we can train people to get there in just a few minutes. And that's the big advantage that science has given us. Given us, We didn't have 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. We don't need 10,000 hours anymore. That's not to say that it's not valuable to keep on practicing. Like I meditate for about an hour every day because I can't help myself. It just feels so good. It feels so wonderful. You wouldn't want to miss it. It's like you wouldn't want to miss drinking water. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally... Yeah. No, I get it. I'm very attached to my own meditation practice. And I love this, especially because I think we make healing very often way too hard. And my work is with treating the vagus nerve as a pinch nerve. And so I have a whole system for addressing that. And people are always so surprised and amazed at the amount of transformation they can accomplish in one session or with a few simple exercises. And I love how this offers people the ability to achieve something that in in the past may have seemed unachievable within the context of a modern life or without giving up everything that you have. Absolutely. And that was the old way. The old way was you joined a monastery, spent years as a novice, you went through a series of initiations. You had to follow the beliefs of the religion. You had to sit at the feet of the master. You had to do penances. You had to uh, observe special dietary restrictions, maybe fasting, maybe vegetarianism, maybe abstinence from tobacco and alcohol and uh, anything like coffee and tea. And so there are all these rules. And eventually after 10, 15, 20 years, maybe you are pure enough, and then you would be allowed to start on 
the advanced teachings, and then you might spend a long time, years and years and years, on those advanced teachings. And that is just not, for one thing, it's not, it's not realistic for people nowadays. I mean, who has the time to spend 10,000 hours doing anything? So you want a path that takes you there quickly. In um, some traditions, it's called the short path or the direct path. You want something that moves the needle really fast without those 10,000 hours. And this is the way to do it. And you're right. People don't understand that they can feel a lot better dramatically. And when they feel better, that physical sensation of well-being is affecting their bodies dramatically. In mind to matter, I have the studies showing that when you are in that, what's called the awakened mind brain pattern, this brain, when you're there, certain frequencies get much bigger. You have a much larger amount of delta waves, theta waves, alpha waves, and then gamma waves. And so those, those low frequency delta waves, for example, they're repairing neural tissue. They're, they're, they're generating a tenfold increase in certain frequencies, tenfold increase in telomeres, which are your anti-aging molecules. So just, I mean, a tenfold increase in certain frequencies within the delta band. Uh, theta, just above that, is associated with repair of neurons in your learning and memory centers, with the repair of DNA, with the repair of cartilage and muscle in your body. So you aren't just feeling good and you aren't just producing these ecstatic emotional and spiritual states, you're producing all of these amazing changes in your body and you're doing it fast. So that's why you see things like, like there's a YouTube video, so cool, of this, uh, this Tai Chi master and he's 114 years old and there he is doing Tai Chi, full range of motion, fully flexible, at 114. Wow. So the longevity and health payoff is enormous from attaining these mental and spiritual states. Next, I'd like to talk a little bit about how, in the book, you go over how neurotransmitters are like drugs. You compare them to pharmaceuticals and to uh, recreational drugs. And just to explain to the listeners kind of how, how that works and how we can achieve, you know, that this internal bliss is, you know, we always look for the answers outside of ourselves <laughs> chemically, but we really have all of that inside. Yeah. And what I say in the book is that that heroin or cocaine addict is not addicted to heroin or cocaine. He or she is addicted to dopamine because that engages the dopamine reward system. Um, MDMA, ecstasy, same thing. Uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, engages the serotonin system. And serotonin is your, dopamine is your go-get-it motivational molecule. And dopamine gives you energy. Dopamine really, uh, like when our ancestors were hunting for either, uh, uh, maybe they're going to kill a rabbit so that the tribe could eat some meat tonight, or they're going to find some tubers with water in them that they can, they can share. That's dopamine. That's that motivation to get, get something done. And it's really exciting. It's really a rush. You know, you, you're, you're, you're driven toward a goal. The serotonin is the, the kind of, of satisfaction you feel when you find the potatoes, you dig up those sweet potatoes 100,000 years ago, and your children eat. So that's serotonin. You feel that rush of well-being. And that is generated by psilocybin. And the way all these molecules work is that the only reason psilocybin is effective is it docks with the same neural receptors in your brain that serotonin docks with. Another good example that everyone knows about is, is morphine. Morphine works only because 
it happens to dock with beta endorphin receptors. And so we have beta endorphins in our brain naturally. And so what happens as you start meditating effectively, now not the meditation I was doing at 15, because that meditation was not very effective. But if you use like their, their meditation tracks in Whispering, they're free. If you just go to the end of each chapter, you can download free meditations there. And if you do that and use those meditations, they're literally triggering the production of dopamine, serotonin, beta, endorphin, oxytocin, nitric oxide, norepinephrine, and then the pinnacle of them all is anandamide. And it has the same molecular shape as THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. And so you start to feel wonderful, blissful when anandamide starts to flood your brain. And even the name of the molecule, ananda, is the Sanskrit word for bliss. So you are truly in bliss brain and you're having all of these neurochemicals flow through your system. And the cool thing is, that's why you meditate every day. One lady walked up to me at a, at a workshop and said, said, Dawson, I, after I got the book, I decided I would meditate every single day without fail, without skipping a single day for 90 days. I said, I, I, just said, I was so thrilled to hear that because pe some people, people read the book and then they go and meditate regularly. But I asked her a follow-up question, which was, and which day of the 90 days are you on right now? She said, I'm on day 137. <laughs> because these are highly addictive neurochemicals. You simply get addicted to feeling good. So you're producing these, these brain waves of pleasure, but you're literally feeling these floods of serotonin, dopamine. I also have a cool section there about orgasm. I did some looking into which neurochemicals are produced by orgasm. And it turns out there are many of the same, same neurochemicals produced by these deep meditations in the book. So you're literally sometimes shaking with ecstasy. Your, your whole body is just vibrating with this intense pleasure and you're feeding all these addictive chemicals and then you do it again. No one has to set a timer to remind you to meditate in the morning. You get up and you want to do this because you want your fix of anandamide, of THC, of cocaine, heroin. You want all of these good chemicals in, in your brain. And then you start the day feeling so wonderful. You know, you begin the day, you're, you're all blissed out. And we do have to, at the end of each meditation, there is about two minutes of bringing you back down to earth because you need to be able to go and drive a car. You need to be able to go and have a meeting at work. And you, you, you can't stay out there all day. And so we have to have a process of kind of calibrating back down to the here and now. So that's why every... Eco meditation ends with look, look what time of day it is, look out and find a small yellow object in the room around you, count the number of light fixtures in the ceiling. So we make sure you come back to the here and now at the end of this drug induced trip, but you can go back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, no, I absolutely love it. I've, and I'm very familiar with that being so blissed out that you shouldn't drive. I actually one time ended up with 11 stitches in my index finger after I had an amazing session or treatment for myself and had a very uh, bad interaction with my immersion blender because I was still in that blessed, blissed out <laughs> state and ended up in the emergency room yeah. uh, that, that evening. So it is, you know, and I do this for uh, my clients very often end up in that blissed out state at the end as well. And I have to 
get them grounded so that they can, before they can leave my office and go drive. So I'm, yeah. Talk a little bit about why we, uh, why it's so hard to get people to, or it can be hard to get people to feel good or getting over that hump. We're so addicted to feeling bad or, our, you know, in our system, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we're certainly wired for the threat that our modern society doesn't present. And we are addicted to being bad because things being bad, because that's how our ancestors survived. And so you think back to your ancestors 100,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago, and they were like when the last glaciers were melting at the end of the last ice age, around 25,000 years ago in Europe, the glaciers were retreating and then peninsulas like Spain and Portugal and Italy became ice-free. But there were Neanderthals around then. There were other different species of of proto-humans. There were animals. There were different tribes who were competing for resources. And you didn't survive by being happy. You survived by being on high alert all the time. I mean, when you went to sleep at night, there was somebody who stayed awake in the tribe and watched to make sure you weren't attacked in the evening. Uh, You built walls around your cities. You had all kinds of um, protective devices, like you just live in a cave or live in a, in a little bit of, in, in, in a place surrounded by water. Um, so ha- happiness, there's no survival level level premium to happiness. Like if, you know, if those people 100,000 years ago, if they did not notice how wonderful the roses smelled, like my wife, when we're in a rose garden, she'll smell a rose and she'll just linger over smelling the rose. And then she'll smell a different rose and say, Dawson, notice how different the second rose smells to the first rose. And that was not me. I tend to be moving so fast. And she's really helped me slow down and savor the scent of each different rose. But if your ancestors were burying their noses in rose gardens and, and turning their backs on the wild, they got eaten. So happiness really uh, didn't pay off in terms of evolutionary survival, whereas paranoia, being incredibly attuned to anything wrong or bad or off in the environment, that's what helped you survive. And so those people with those genes that that made cortisol quickly, that made adrenaline more rapidly, they tended to survive and the happy people didn't. So here we are in modern day society and we we have stuff to worry about. We had um, the pandemic over the course of the last year, we had the election, we have we have stuff, but none of it's actually a threat to our physical survival. It's like there are a few people who might get sick and who might die, but for the vast majority of people, it's um, it's 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 a, it's an unlikely event. So there aren't the predators and the and the scarce resources of a few thousand years ago, and yet we still live as if we're on high alert. And we, we then read the news or we find fault with our bodies, our coworkers, our kids, our parents, and we attune to the negative still. And that really robs us of happiness. So in Bliss Brain, I'm really encouraging people to tune in to Bliss every day and then start to counteract the brain's ac- activity. And the cool thing is, uh, I was arguing 15 years ago that, well, you... You can do this and raise your mood. You can use EFT tapping to make yourself feel better. You can meditate, but you can't change the hard wiring of the brain. And then in the last 15 years, research has shown me to be completely and utterly wrong. 
that you change the brain's anatomy, you change the brain structurally. And I just did a study recently, it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet, it'll be published next year, but it showed that in four weeks of doing the meditations in Bliss Brain, that four weeks of doing that, 20 minutes a day, produced structural changes in the anatomy of the brain. Parts of the brain that have to do with, it's called self-referential thinking, negative critical thinking, those parts of the brain shut down, and the part of the brain that has to do with happiness, compassion, integration, lit up. So that didn't take 10,000 hours, then it took four weeks, 20 minutes a, a day, and those were structural and functional changes in the way the brain works. So now we know that we human beings are remodeling our brain with every strong emotion attached to a thought, and that gives us leverage to change in extensively and in ways we're just beginning to explore right now. So it's exciting. We aren't stuck with the brain that Mother Nature gave, gave us, and we can learn to change it. Yeah, absolutely. I've had the great privilege of seeing that over the years in my practice, particularly with stroke patients, because, and it's so amazing. I know the research shows that they, that at least 20 years out, they can still gain improvement. And it's just like, you know, there's, it's, it's my drug of choice to make those kinds of changes happen in people. It's, you know, there's definitely nothing more, uh, more thrilling than seeing how, uh, how movement can change. And it's so exciting to now have all of that validated with how the brain structure itself is changing also. Yeah, absolutely. Those stroke patients can change. When, when that, those first studies were published showing them in the mid-1990s, they were they rocked the world of neuroscience because we didn't believe that after a portion of brain tissue had died, it could regenerate. And now we're showing that the brain will literally craft new pathways around the damaged tissue. So yeah. Yeah. In the book, you talk a lot, uh, you talk about different kinds of types of meditation, and I like how you compare it to being good at different types of sports, that there's kind of a, you know, that if you, uh, whether you do a moving meditation or a mantra meditation, so can you talk a little bit about the different types of meditations and, because I think people get, I find a lot of my clients think meditation has to look one particular way. And I do a lot of education in terms of like, in terms of giving them options yeah. for meditation. Uh, and I, I, that's what being a science writer is all about. You have to find analogies to illustrate scientific points. And so people talk about meditation, researchers talk about meditation, but I emphasized in the book that there are dozens of different styles of meditation, and I divide meditation up into seven distinct schools of meditation. And so I, I encourage people to play around with those and see which one works for them. But that analogy I found was the world of sport. You could say, well, I, I, I play a sport. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, what, what sport? Is it mountain biking? Or is it tennis? Or is it swimming? Or is it a team sport. These are vastly different kinds of, 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 of activities. So just saying meditation, you got to really hone in on what kind of meditation. Also in the book, I look at the types of meditation that produce the quickest neuroplasticity, because some kinds of meditation produce very slow neuroplasticity or none of it. And then there are things you can do that are really effective. But there are basically seven different kinds of meditation. One of them, people probably have tried is following the breath. You just notice your breathing coming in and out. 
Uh, some schools, like the ones that practice pranayama, get really complicated about, about breathing. But breathing really grounds people in the body and can be, can be useful. You could try the kind of meditation that has you simply notice your thoughts. You step back at the witness observer role and notice the thoughts going through your brain without getting attached to them. There are movement meditations where people do things with their bodies, yoga, you might, yoga nidra, another movement meditation or or stillness meditation, Um, qigong, tai chi, uh, walking meditations, very slow conscious walking. All of those are moving meditations and somebody might really get nowhere with say following the breath and then benefit from those walking meditations or those physical meditations. For other people, it's uh, it's more helpful to, uh, to to find somebody else who's already there and copy their state. And so reading, for example, the work of a saint, you know, go, go read um, an inspiring book by a great spiritual teacher. Go, go read uh, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, some books of the Bible, you know, St. Luke. Um, go find something in your religious tradition that inspires you and, and read that. There's so many beautiful people who've shown us the way in their writings that can prime your brain to enter those states yourself. So reading and contemplating scripture or inspirational texts is another way of, uh, of bringing yourself to that place. Another way is sound. Some people... Is sound and sound is really healing. So they can play meditation music or listen to a guided meditation. And a lot of people have have a hard time initially in just closing their eyes and then moving to those states. So that's why I give you in this brain there are eight guided meditations you get for free, and they'll help you get to those places quickly. And then the final way is to use a visual cue. And in Tibetan Buddhism, this is in the form of yantras. So you'll see these um, often very symmetrical patterns that people use as the focus of meditation to give themselves a visual focus. In Christianity, people can light uh, light a special candle, and on the candle there might be the image of a a saint, or they may have an image of Jesus or or Mary or one of the other saints that they they gaze at. Uh, Sufism has other visual exercises that people use. So find, play around. In fact, play around with your life, just experiment with different things and see what sparks bliss brain in you. And then when something stops being useful to you, stops helping you move ahead, drop it and find, find the next thing. But it's worth playing around with all those different styles of meditation. Yeah. I, I love that. I'm a big fan of playing different, playing around with that and also changing up your routine. I, I find for myself that I have, uh, I go through different phases where, uh, I, it, it helps me to change it up. And then when I go back to just a still meditation, I feel like it's stronger because I gave my, gave my brain a different stimulus for a little while. That's right. In the book, you talk about how loving kindness and compassion are more powerful or, or like are the most powerful types of meditation or the most powerful components of meditation. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And how it ties in to as as a healthcare provider, and, and especially right now in the midst of coronavirus, I see a lot of my colleagues that are in hospital-based practices uh, having a lot of compassion fatigue and having a, a hard time with their maintaining boundaries 
And so, like, I'd love to hear more about the loving kindness and compassion and to maybe uh, tie that in to avoiding uh, to what or how that compares to, to get caught, how not to get caught up in compassion fatigue, I guess, <laughs> along with that. Well, compassion is the ability to feel the pain of another, to witness somebody and feel pain. And it is uh, mediated by very special neurons called von Economo neurons, which are in the insula of our brain, which is this, this, this tissue that lies between the outer layers of the neocortex and the inner layers of the limbic system. And so the insula is in the central part of the brain, and it has these special neurons. And these neurons are found only in highly social species like dolphins, whales, uh, chimpanzees, um, elephants. They all have monoconomo neurons in their brains, but other species that aren't social don't. And so this allows us to see someone else in pain and then feel the pain ourselves and then act compassionately toward them. It also keeps us together in social groups and uh, the ability to bond and work together is a very important survival advantage. So um, there, there, what, what research has shown is that if you engage compassion in your meditation, you produce quicker wiring in the neural bundles that govern things like happiness and also the suppression of self-absorption. Because usually we're just self-absorbed, we're worrying about our past problems and our future problems. We aren't in the now. We're, we're constructing the sense of self. And that sense of self is built by this, this axis of tissue, the default mode network, the midprefrontal cortex, and the posterior cingulate cortex in the back of the head. Those are the default mode network, and the brain defaults to that unhappy thinking, self-absorbed, whining, narcissism. <laughs> just, that's just where it defaults to, because again, that was very useful when you were 100,000 years ago. It was really super useful to have your brain default to thinking about the tiger that almost ate you yesterday and the tiger that might eat you tomorrow. So that's just <laughs> why that the self-preservation is, is what our brain defaults to. But um, in these monks, in these nuns, I mean, there's one story I, I read about um, a, a Tibetan monk and um, he, he escaped from China. He was tortured. And on the way out, he eventually escaped. And then he, he, he became part of the Dalai Lama's inner circle for a while. And um, he, he was disfigured because the fingers of his one hand had been cut off. And he, the Dalai Lama asked him, he said, what was your moment of greatest danger? And the monk said, my moment of greatest danger was when the Chinese soldier was cutting off the middle finger on my hand because I almost lost my compassion for him mm. at that moment. Uh, so these, these saints are able to generate huge amounts of activity in the insula and have, have compassion that is quite remarkable and it sparks brain change. Now, compassion doesn't mean having no boundaries. You have boundaries, but you need to have them in the context of compassion. We feel compassion. Does that mean we just give ourselves over to other people? No. And it's, you know, one of the, the cool things about compassion is as you have compassion and hold others in compassion, 
you very quickly realize that the person you're being the most compassionate to is you. So if you need water, you give yourself water. If you need a break, you give yourself a break. I quite selfishly take about one week off a month, disappear into the backwoods, go on a retreat, and no one can get a hold of me for, for seven days. Is that compassion? Absolutely. It's compassion for Dawson Church, because when Dawson Church goes back to work on the, the eighth day, I'm refreshed, I'm renewed, and I'm able to bring a lot to my, my world. Another example is my workshops. I tell people in my workshops, you know, we're going to have a fantastic time in this live or this virtual workshop. And this is more true to live workshops, in-person workshops. And I say, it's going to be a radically transformative experience, and it will be. And when there's a break, I'm going to disappear. <laughs> I'm not going to hang around and chat with you at the break because I need to pull back into myself and have my own space again for that half hour or however long it is. So compassion is both extending compassion and it's also being loving and compassionate to yourself and for your own needs. I absolutely love how you work that into your, uh, have built that into your work and really to, um, you know, like I always, I often say, you know, bodybuilders and elite weightlifters dose their rest as specifically as they dose their exercise. And we don't really dose our rest or our downtime as specifically as we do precisely as we dose our activity. And it's so important to, uh, yeah, to be able to pull, pull back. And I love thinking about that as self-compassion because really when you get to the point of self-compassion, that's when things radically change in your body and in your life when, uh, when you can get there. I'm in the beginning of the book, you talk about your experience, uh, with in 2017 with losing your house and I'm would love to know how your to hear a little bit about how all of these amazing tools that you have really served you through that experience it was probably one of the most dramatic things I've ever experienced because my wife woke me up one night just shook me by my shoulder and said Dawson, something's really wrong. And I looked at the alarm clock and next to my bed, it was saying 12.45 a.m. I looked out the window. There was an orange glow on the horizon. I got out of bed, walked out onto the deck, and there was this wildfire racing down the hillside toward us. And I just yelled at her, we're getting out of here right now. And we literally flung on some clothes, grabbed our phones and our car keys and sprinted for the car in a surreal um, scene where the, 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 the embers were blowing horizontally across the, the, the landscape because the winds were gusting up to 70 miles an hour. So there were these embers being blown and it was like being in a snowstorm, except these were white embers and we, we ran through these, we got to the car, and we just drove, we have a long, long driveway on our property. We had a building for the office, we had a storage uh, facility, we had several garages, several outbuildings, and then our, our home, which was on the biggest property overlooking the valley. And um, we just 
so we had to run for the car and then jump in the car and then drive at speed out of our through our, past our along our driveway out of the road and and then towards safety but as we were driving down the driveway my wife felt heat on her head and she looked up through the moonroof and all the trees above her were on fire all the tree tree wow. branches were on fire we eventually got out we eventually were about three miles away from the fire and we knew we were safe but um we were really disoriented for the next few days we the following day a friend of ours got in there because the national guard had sealed it all off and you know, we, we didn't know for sure if the house had been destroyed but our friend snuck in there took photographs and, and texted them to us and it was just total devastation only the foundations remained of the house and, and the chimney, everything else was just ash. And the office, like the filing cabinets were, 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 were just melted and the, I mean, everything was just completely melted um, sitting on these concrete foundations. And so we realized we, you know, there was no home to go, go to and we just had to then figure it out over the next while, which we did. We, 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 uh, we, we tapped. And then that the next morning I woke up and I said to my wife, we need to meditate right now. It's an emergency, an emergency meditation because we're, we're, we're just, we're out of it. And I literally felt myself drop into my body. And that's what people do when they're in danger is they dissociate, they leave their bodies. Absolutely. The, the, you know, the, the veteran in a firefight is just, doesn't want to be in his body. Uh, the young child getting molested doesn't want to be in her body. She checks out and dissociates. And so dissociation is this really useful thing we human beings do when we're faced with overwhelming circumstances but then you need to when the crisis is passed drop back in and reclaim your power and so we applied all of those techniques over the next two or three years of rebuilding and you know it was it was difficult it was painful we wound up losing uh, everything obviously we lost all our possessions but we also wound up um because of the hit to our business losing our entire retirement savings we, we consumed all, all of our money we wound up the end of the next year, about $300,000 in debt. So we were having a financial crash. I had to have an operation because I injured myself after the fire. And um, so I just did what anyone would do after a devastating set of events like that. While meditating, I wrote a book called Bliss Brain because I, I would sit there in the morning, I'd think, Dawson, are you delusionary? I mean, how can you be so happy and you've lost your house, all your money, you've had to clean out your retirement fund your business is on the ropes. I mean, physically, you're not doing too well. I mean, how is it possible? Just be blissfully happy every day. And it is. That, that, that's, that's the thing. So it's not just when times are good and there are no challenges. The, if you have practiced these techniques, you are so resilient that all kinds of things happen. You know, people said to me at the start of the pandemic, well, aren't you worried? It's like, you know, my friend, once your house is burned down, you've had a, you've lost all your retirement savings and you're in a medical crisis, you know, the pandemic seems like a manageable problem. We just kept meditating all the way through it and um, grew our business through it, found ways to offer our services online and all, all was well. But that's the kind of resilience that I, I, I train people into in Bliss Brain. You want to apply these techniques and they make you creative, they make you happy, and they make you, they give you, resilience isn't a psychological trait only. It's literally the volume of tissue in the stress reduction and emotional regulation circuits of your brain. 
And in one of the chapters of Bliss Brain, chapter seven, I talk about a guy who began to meditate, but he was a TV producer. So he got his whole crew into uh, advanced neuroimaging lab, and they made a whole movie about his, his, his meditation journey. But the, the, lab, uh, the lab psychologists did these MRIs on him, and they did that before he began to meditate. And then again, in eight weeks after he'd become mindful, much more mindful, and they found that parts of his brain had grown by two or three or 4% in only eight weeks. And then one part of the brain, a little bit of tissue in the center of the brain called the dentate gyrus that regulates negative emotion, like irritation, like anger, like panic attacks, like depression. It regulates all of these negative emotions. That part of his brain in eight weeks grew by 22.8%. And that kind of growth, 22.8% in only two months, is the speed with which some parts of our brain are changed by our consciousness. So that's what I say, mean when I say you're resilient, not just at the level of mood and psychology, you're resilient at the level of the neural hardwiring inside your skull that helps you manage your negative emotions and make wise choices and bounce back. I love it. You have some, uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about immunity and meditation while we're in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic right now and how meditation can be beneficial to our immune systems. Well, that was a real surprise to me. And so I had done two clinical trials with colleagues of mine a few years ago, and we just happened to include a measure of immunity because we were studying cortisol. And I knew that when cortisol went down, which it does in our various studies, I knew that beneficial um, biomarkers would go up. And the one we looked at in that particular study is called salivary immunoglobulin A. And it's an antibody. And the way it works with coronaviruses is that when a coronavirus enters your, um, your body through your mucous membranes, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, and again, coronaviruses, there are seven of them, two of them cause colds. So a lot of us have been exposed to the coronaviruses of the common cold. And the coronavirus spikes, those protein spikes that stud the outside of them, attach to the cell walls, drill, drill through, and then affect the cell. And these antibodies are shaped in a way that sticks to the spike and neutralizes it. And so we were studying these. We just happened to include a measure of this as a counterpart to cortisol. We reasoned if cortisol went down, maybe we didn't know for sure it would improve immune antibodies. And we were just astonished when the results came back from the lab because it showed that in two days, of EFT acupressure tapping and meditation. So the first study was mostly meditation, a little bit of tapping. The second study was a week long, was mostly tapping, a little bit of meditation. But the two-day study showed that people's levels of immunoglobulins rose by 27%. That's like a quarter better immunity after any two days. And then the other study showed, the week-long study showed that after one week of being in a retreat center, of getting unstressed, of tapping meditation, that those immune antibodies rose by 113%. And 
And you know, I just think in all the 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 searching we do for um, cures and for improvements, and modern medicine is great. I mean, I love the fact we have such a, a, a wide selection of remedies, but people they they you know they they tend to want to go for the pill or the cure or the mechanical mm-hmm. or material solution, but energy consciousness. I mean, you get happier, you tap away your stress, you meditate and center yourself, and suddenly it's producing big changes. And in this case, 113% rise, more than doubling of immune antibodies in just a week. So that's the power of these techniques. That's amazing. The last thing I'd love to uh, to ask you, because I have a shared vision for this with, with you and uh, with my work, I would love for my vagus nerve exercises someday to be basic public health and for them to be accessible to everybody. I know you want your eco meditation to be accessible to everybody as well. How do you see that happening? What do you think are ways that these kinds of modal that your modality can get out to the general public? um, And uh, you know, what kind of changes can you envision in public health that would make space for people to really learn how powerful they are themselves? Yeah, that's a big question because I wrote a paper in 2014 with some distinguished colleagues from different universities, and we looked at innovation in healthcare, and we used various government reports and got their data. And the picture is about as bleak as you can imagine in terms of getting medical innovations to patients. And what these reports have found is that for an innovation to get from being proven effective in the lab to actually being delivered to the patient's bedside, the average lag time is 17 years. And we found uh, that that's the good news. The bad news is that of of every five developed only whatever gets to the patient, the other four are lost and never get implemented. So they, they, these really effective therapies, and some of them are very simple, and they just never reach the patient. Four out of five good therapies, proven therapies, are lost and never implemented. So um, it, it, the, the medical system is highly resistant to innovation, and we tend to use the same stuff over and over and over again. It's like if I told you, you know, Melanie, I'm going to send you a Christmas present. I'm going to give you a cell phone. I'm going to send you a cell phone. I get your physical address and I send you off the cell phone. And I say, you know, just just one thing about the cell phone. It's 17 years old and 80% of its features are disabled. (laughs) I mean, we we would never accept that for technology. And when it comes to our bodies and our health and our mental health, we're quite, as a society, we, we tolerate this kind of lack of innovation. So uh, it's it's definitely hard. Like uh, EFT is approved by the VA now. It took us 10 years to get it approved. And even then it, it was it was a miracle it got approved. Right now we're trying, we have a project to try and get uh, EFT into 18, what are called whole health VA centers. And we'll see how that that moves along. But it's, it's definitely a, a challenge. And so the therapy has to be pretty, Remarkable it has to be a real um, advance for it to go someplace. Now EFT is and eco meditation is 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 the both 
incredibly effective. So they aren't just um, you know twenty five percent better; they're a whole quantum leap better than most of the other methods used for for mental health and for pain as well. So uh, you have to have a good therapy. You need research, and you need, need advocacy. You eventually need need you need champions within an organization who say say. I'm going to get that done. With EFT was a young psychiatrist at Walter Reed who just um, just advocated for EFT, and he got disciplined. He got threatened with um, with with being dismissed. Uh, he got negative performance reviews. I mean, he the kind of wow. uh, yeah. He, he just the kind of resistance there is. I remember, I remember going to present at Walter Reed in 2004, and the day before our presentation. The senior psychiatrist. We and we had a whole team that had flown all the way, all over the country, to present there. And the day before the presentation, the senior psychiatrist cancelled it. Said this is just woo woo. Wouldn't wouldn't even hear the evidence. Mm. So um, it it's a challenge, and a therapy has to be good. Now yeah. people also are becoming more aware of the potential of energy, and so they're they're more willing than they were a while back. Like read Wikipedia, read the entries on energy medicine, energy psychology. They tell you pseudoscience. They they don't uh, they they're they're um, they're science deniers. They're like the climate change deniers. They deny the all the science behind acupuncture and all these wonderful new therapies. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of entrenched opposition that new therapies have. And it's it's really uh, a problem. Now the good news is if you are sick. You can go find those things pretty easily yourself and then apply them in a combination of alternative and traditional, and your doctor will probably be quite okay with you doing that. Because uh, when I talk to physicians or when patients go and tell their doctor that they're tapping or they're meditating, the doctor's going to say, great. And so the doctors certainly are very rarely discouraging their their, their patients. Yeah. But um, for the time being, if, if, if you're the patient, just make sure you get the newest stuff. Don't be content with with 20% of 17-year-old care. Amen. I will echo that. I'm very familiar with that 17-year statistic. (laughs) So, well, for everybody listening, I highly encourage you to get your copy of Bliss Brain. uh, If you do the audiobook, there's beautiful meditations at the end of the chapters. There's also online resources to get them if you have the hard copy or the Kindle copy. And Dawson Church, I could talk to you all day long. This has been so fantastic. <laughs> such a big, <laughs> such a big treat for me. And thank you so much for being here. Melanie, what a joy. Thanks for putting the word out there. And also the publisher has given us 5,000 books to give away. So right now, Bliss Brain, the book, the hard copy you can get for free at blissbrain.com. So, um, you know, just you pay shipping and handling, but the book itself is free. And you get the meditations, access to those as well there. So I really recommend you grab the book and I mean, just do whatever you can. Let your friends know, your family members know. This is just a remarkable way of healing and it's totally accessible. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I can't in- encourage you. My I, my goal is, has always been to put myself out of business. And this is certainly uh, <laughs> one book, you know, or at least out of illness care. <laughs> you know? And this is certainly, this this book is a good way to to keep yourself out of the doctor's office for a variety of, uh, of conditions. So I, I definitely highly recommend it. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. <laughs> I'd love to, Billy. Thanks again. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence Podcast. Text FEARLESS to 411-321 to take your first step into Fearless Presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.